invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to Genesis chapter 33. Chapter 33, not chapter 32. Chapter 33, we uh, continue our, our study through the life of Jacob at the moment. We actually kind of come to a conclusion part as we are going to endeavor to finish the, cha- the chapter today. My goal is to uh, get us to about chapter 36 or so, and then we're going to pause our study in Genesis as a little checkpoint there and uh, go back into the uh, New Testament and look at some new material. We'll come back and finish this, uh, the last part of Genesis at another time. As we kind of wrap up the, the, the story of Jacob, we won't read it all this morning as uh, we're going to kind of look through it as we go uh, along. I encourage you to uh, write down things as you see them. There's a lot here that we just simply don't have time to say. And so I ask that you will bear with me as I possibly pass over some things that you see that you wish we would talk a little bit more about. Let's uh, take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to bless us as we study his word. Father, we come this morning to ask simply that you will sanctify your people through the truth. Your word is truth. We love your word. It is milk and meat. It is honey that is sweet. Lord, we thank you for it. We ask that you will use it to sanctify your people today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Every good story has what's known as a conflict or a struggle. It's uh, the problem that arises some, sometime in the story that pushes the narrative forward. It takes you to the end. It's kind of the reason that you're reading that story or watching the movie, however the storyline is being portrayed. It keeps us interested. It makes us invested. It, it's what makes us cheer for the good guy and boo and hiss at the bad guy. Now sometimes, uh, depending on the skill of the author or depending on the intention of the author, you can read the story or watch the story unfold and pick up little hints how the struggle, how the conflict is going to be resolved. Um, As you get familiar with an author you may begin to notice their habits, their patterns. And by the beginning of the, uh, by the end of the first chapter, you've already kind of figured out how the good guy is going to win or how the bad guy or uh, how the conflict is going to be settled. But a good story can keep you hanging all the way to the very end. A good story never gives it away too soon. One of the reasons why I like to watch uh, British television shows, uh, detective shows, uh, they, they do a good job, I think, of uh, keeping you invested longer uh, as it tells the story. One of two things generally happens when I'm watching one of those shows. Uh, one, I am following along, I, I know what's going to happen, I know how it's going to, and I know who done it, I know... Uh, where, where, when and where and all of that stuff and then 
all of a sudden at the very end, I've been watching for 50 minutes and within the last two minutes, uh, everything changes and it's not who I thought it was and it's not how, it was, how I thought it was going to be and the mystery is solved but in a way that I completely did not expect. What happens more frequently though is that I'm watching and I'm paying attention and I understand what's going on but I have no idea who did it. I have no idea what I'm supposed to be expecting and then within the last five minutes, Everything comes together so beautifully, and I'm left wondering how I didn't see this in the first place. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's a good story. That keeps you invested. That keeps you interested, and it wraps everything up well at the very end. That's the kind of story that we have in Genesis 33. Well, this is the end of this kind of a story. The drama has been building. The suspense has been growing over the past several chapters in the Jacob and Esau saga. Once again, I would ask you to not jump ahead of the story if you already know how it happens. Uh, Last week, I think it was, I told you to come at this with the attitude of of a child who had never heard these stories before. And actually, one of the kids came up to me and said, I didn't know how the story was going. And I didn't know that he was wrestling with God. That was pretty interesting. And that's the attitude that I would ask you to have this, excuse me, that's the attitude I would ask you to take this morning. Put all of the future information uh, away in a drawer and look at this as objectively as you can. Genesis, uh, Genesis 33 is the conclusion when all will be revealed with the coming of Esau. Excuse me, I've got something stuck in my throat. See if that works. Genesis 33 is going to kind of put a bow on the rest of the story. This is what we've been anticipating. This is what we've been waiting to see what will happen. For the past 20 years, Esau has been a distant and almost forgotten memory. Jacob left his family. He left his brother, mostly because of his brother, and went to the place of Haran for 20 years we were distracted, if you will, by Laban and by uh, the goings-on in Paddan Aram with Jacob. But now we've kind of read the story. The Laban conflict has ended, and Jacob is heading back to the land of his father. And we are confronted again with this Esau problem, this Esau trouble, and the threat of Esau's final words about Jacob still echoes. Chapter 27 and verse 41, Esau said, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. It's been 20 years. Has Esau forgotten that promise or is he ready to make good on it? Well, then in chapter 31, Jacob is making his way back and He's confronted by Laban, and that problem gets dealt with. And then he tries to reach out in chapter 32 to his brother Esau and sends messengers down to Seir to uh, let him know that he's coming back into town and would like to see him, like to make things, you know, show that he's a changed man. And he gets the troubling news that Esau is coming to see him, and he's bringing 400 men with him. 
20 years has not erased Esau's memories, obviously. And since the beginning of chapter 32, Jacob has been dreading this arrival of Esau and his 400 men. And in the middle of this, in the middle of the the night and at the end of the chapter, Jacob wrestles with God. We looked at that last week. Two big things happen to him. He wrestles with God and his name is changed to Israel. Now this is significant, first because it happens in the middle of the drama, so we need to pay attention to that. Uh, It happens in the middle of the waiting for Esau to come. But it's significant not because it determines the result of what is about to happen, but rather that it prepares us and prepares Jacob for what is about to happen. Because after we read this next part of the story, we remember what happened that night in the ring on the mat, and it all makes a little bit more sense. Jacob had seen God face to face in chapter 32. He is now ready to face Esau in chapter 33. One of the big themes that I want you to to notice, not just in this story, but in all of Jacob's story, and, and then all of Genesis, if you haven't picked up on it, is God's promise to deliver His people. The promise of deliverance. There's a lot of themes and they're all interconnected, but deliverance is one that I want you to notice as we think about these, uh, these uh, stories. God has promised to provide, to protect, to be with His people, and that means that He has promised to deliver them from their enemies. So far, we have seen God faithfully do that. God did it faithfully with Abraham. God did it faithfully for Isaac. And so far, he's done it for Jacob. But here is Jacob's greatest enemy, Esau. Will God protect him now? And in Genesis 33, we will see that God delivers Jacob in a very surprising way. Not by destroying his enemy, not by warning his enemy, threatening him, but by reconciling him. So if you look at verse number 1 of Genesis chapter 33, and we don't know how much time has passed, but Moses definitely writes it to us as if it was the very next day after this wrestling match. He limps away from Peniel, his name is changed. His body is probably exhausted from no sleep and fighting all night. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, Esau was coming and 400 men with him. It's showtime. Time to do what you've been planning to do. Time to find out what Esau is really planning to do. And I want you to notice in the first three verses, J- Jacob's humble approach. We're going to contrast the two different approaches of these brothers here, and we'll just see them uh, briefly as we get down to, towards the end of the chapter. But first of all, we see Jacob's humble approach. And notice that it says, So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. He put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. So he's separated his family out, I guess by order of importance to him, with Rachel and Joseph, his favorite, being at the back. I guess so that if Esau really starts hacking away, 
his, his most prized people have a chance to escape, and the people that he doesn't really care about as much uh, are, are going to suffer. I think that some of this favoritism begins to uh, uh, mess with the family dynamic, as we'll see later on, uh, as we see later on, especially with the, the family of uh, Joseph and, and Rachel. Then it goes on, it says, and he went, on, he went himself, uh, went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. So he divides his family, but then he's not in the very back. He's not a coward. He's not, he's not uh, waiting to see if, if, if everybody else makes it safely, and then he'll be there. No, he goes ahead in front, and he walks towards his brother. So I'm imagining him. He's a far off away, but it's close enough that he knows that it's Esau, and Esau knows that it's Jacob, and he begins to stop every few steps and bow to the ground seven times, which was a, a custom there to show uh, deference and humility. And, and, and we, we see this language here that he calls Esau my Lord, and he refers to himself as Esau's servant. And Jacob is, is, is in a way, trying to show that he cannot change the past, but he himself is a changed man. He is not the same Jacob that he was 20 years ago. And we see in, in down in verse number 8 that Jacob is endeavoring to find favor in the sight of his brother Esau. I wonder how much guilt and remorse is mixed in with this, these words and these actions of bowing and, and, uh, and, and, and speaking with such uh, deferential tones. But he's definitely, he is a changed man, and I think he's trying to show Esau that. Now contrast that with the way that Esau uh, approaches his brother. It's not stop and start and bow and apologize and trip all over your words. But Esau, verse 4, ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. I mean, Esau is the guy who just runs up and gives him a bear hug. He's, he's waiting for Jacob to stop bowing so he can just hold him. He didn't attack him with a sword. He attacked him with open arms and is ready to uh, receive him. There's no sign of anger. There's no signs of resentment. If you want to uh, get a better, a better picture of what, what, what we're supposed to be thinking here, think about the New Testament, uh, not the equivalent, but the New Testament parable of the prodigal son. The prodigal son, the, the same verbs are attached there as when the father saw his son, he ran to him, he grabbed him, he hugged him, he kissed him, he wept, and he gave him gifts. Now, this is not a, I don't think this is a parallel story, but I do think that we can, when, we, when we read the prodigal son, we can, we can get an idea of how the father reacted to what Esau here is, uh, is doing. Now, Esau makes several uh, interesting statements that help us to understand more of this unusual um, turn of events. In verse number five, he asks the first question. He says, who are these with you? He's, he's, he's holding his brother. He looks up behind his brother, and he sees all these people coming. And they're obviously not standing in a big circle. They're, they're coming in staggered. And so, and so he says, who are these people? And Jacob says in verse five, these are, the, these are the children that God has graciously given to me. Then he, uh, he, he has his family introduced one by one. And just like Jacob did, the mothers and their children bow before Esau, showing the same deference and, and humility to Esau as Jacob had. And then in verse number 8, it says, uh, Esau asked the second question. He said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? He said, what was all that back there for? I know I'm a, I found out what, what all this is. 
what was all that back there? I mean, as I was coming in, you kept bringing all these gifts. What, what was all that for? And, and Jacob said, I, I, I want to find favor in your sight. It's a gift. It's for you. I want to find favor in your sight. And listen, notice what Esau says. I have enough. Uh, verse number, I'm sorry, I just lost my place here. Verse number nine, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now, the reason that they've been feuding was over inheritance and wealth. But now, when Jacob is trying to give him something, Esau says, I've got plenty, brother. I'm not worried about getting more. Keep what is yours. And that's important. Because what we find here is Esau is implying that what Jacob has is not a stolen blessing. It's yours. Keep what you have. Keep what is yours. And Jacob says, he insists, he says, no, I really want you to have it because seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. And Esau doesn't know about the last night's events, but Jacob remembers that he saw God and lived. And it was the same mercy that God kept him alive though he, uh, when he saw him that he felt Esau was displaying. You have the power to take me out, and yet you have let me live. So please take it. He says there in verse number 11, Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. He's saying, I want you to accept it, if not to find favor, then accept it because I have found favor. Show me that you accept me. By accepting my gift. Then Esau makes another important statement as we work our way down in verse number 12. Esau's ready to continue traveling. Let us journey on our way and I'll go ahead of you. He said, all right, let's go back. Let's get back to Seir. Let's go back to Edom and I'll be with you. I'll go in front of you. And basically he's offering his protection. Jacob says to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, that the nursing flocks and herds are care to me. If they are driven hard, for one day all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. He says, you know, the, the children that I have are young and weak. The flocks that I have, they're frail, they're fragile. And if I push them as hard as you're used to going with your soldiers, they'll all die. So you go ahead, and I'll stay back, and I'll lead at the slowest pace of the slowest person until I come to you in Seir. We'll only slow you down. So then Esau says, well, at least let me leave some people with you, in verse number 15. And Jacob says, there's no need. Because now, now Esau is saying, if I can't be with you, if I can't provide you my company, at least I can provide you some protection, I'll provide you an escort. And Jacob says no. Now, obviously, at least in Esau's eyes, and I think it's, it's easy to, to see here, that Jacob was traveling through the wilderness very vulnerable, very unprotected. He didn't have an army with him. He had people, but he didn't have soldiers. He, didn't, he needed people to protect him. But he had recognized that so far, God has brought me safely. God has protected me. I don't need to rely on Esau's help. No need. Just go on ahead. And what I think is so interesting is that Esau just leaves. But what it says there in verse number 16, so Esau returned that day 
on his way to see her. He hadn't just come, you know, five minutes away. Esau had been traveling at least overnight. Can you imagine if you showed up at someone's house after traveling, I don't know, 10, 12 hours, and that same day you turned around and went back home? I mean, that's just a lot of traveling for just a short visit. But something important had happened during this visit. A reconciliation had been made. But, yet again, we are surprised by something else, verse number 17. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth, that is west. So Esau had come from the north up to meet Jacob, and he wanted to travel back down south to Edom or to Seir. But instead, Jacob went west. That's west to me. I don't know if that's west to you. But, anyway, but Jacob went the other direction. And he didn't go the direction that he kind of made Esau think he was going. Now, Jacob was certainly right for not going with Esau because God had told him to go to Canaan. And Esau was not living in Canaan. Now, was Jacob being deceitful in his words? I kind of think so. I think Jacob still was acting a little bit of fear here. The other People would say, well, no, Jacob, Esau knew what he meant. He was just going to come eventually. It's kind of like when you say, uh, yeah, we'll have lunch sometime, and you just keep saying that for you know, six months to a year, and you never actually mean it. Uh, you just say that. And, but I don't know, but all we have here is what, what actually it says here. And Jacob travels to Sukkoth, and there he builds himself a house, and he builds himself some barns. The word Sukkoth means booths, barns. And so he builds these permanent structures for his animals, which makes me believe that these, he spent a little bit of time here. It's only a verse or two that we see until he travels down to the next place, but I think that uh, we could understand that he had been here for quite some time. And then finally, in verse number 18, Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Panerim. He camped before the city, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. What's all that about? Well, he travels to Shechem. Important things that will kind of unfold as we go on to the story. But he buys some land and he builds himself an altar here. And he names this altar something significant. El Elohe Israel. It means God, the God of Israel. In other words, Jacob is saying, this is my God. He is not only affirming that this is his God, but that he is, he is owning the name that this God gave him. He's not saying El, the God of Jacob. He's saying El, the God of Israel, which, confer, uh, which fulfills the vow that he made back in chapter 28 when he said, if I return to my father's house in peace, then Yahweh will be my God. He has returned. He's not back to his dad's house yet, but he's back into the land of Canaan, and, it, and it's, not incident, it's not coincidence that it says that he came safely to the city of Shechem. Now, what we find interesting about this story is that nothing happened the way that Jacob thought it was going to happen. God has delivered his people once again in varied and surprising ways. And all the fretting, and all the worrying and all the anxiety proved to be pointless because it happened better than expected. In fact, Jacob couldn't have expected this. And it wasn't because of his present. It wasn't because of his cleverness. It was because of his God. 
the God who wrestled with him the night before and was with him and was protecting him. God delivered Jacob in a variety of ways. We saw him deliver Jacob from Laban earlier with a warning. But now he delivers Jacob from Esau with reconciliation. What do we mean by reconciliation? The the definition of that just simply is exchanging hostility for a friendly relationship. And in our language, it means you turn your enemies into friends. And God turned enemies into friends. Brothers. Once again reunited. Highly unlikely for Jacob and Esau. Completely unexpected. But exactly what happened. Someone once said, reconciliation is a work of God. And Jacob may have had difficulty appreciating that truth at the time he was preparing to face Esau. But in the final analysis, he realized that God had been gracious to him and delivered him and brought him safely home, just as he had promised. He he did all that he said he would do. And this is how God acts all throughout Jacob's life. But this is how God acts all throughout the scriptures. The first audience of this story, early Israel, what were they supposed to learn from this? That God was able to deliver them in whatever circumstance they found themselves. And they would find themselves in some troubling situations often. And they needed to know each and every time God could and would deliver them. God was able And God was willing to deliver them. The most historic moment of their history was their deliverance out of Egypt. And God did so by judgment and by destruction. But later on in their history, God would deliver them in all sorts of ways. By simply marching around the city quietly. By blowing trumpets and flashing candles at a camp. And the army would just kill themselves. All throughout the Old Testament, we find Israel being delivered by God, sometimes simply by standing still and watching God do it. They needed to know that God was good on His Word. That God is not limited, or as 1 Samuel 14 says, that nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And this is the same lesson that we must learn. God's deliverance is promised. Sometimes it is spectacular. And sometimes it is surprisingly ordinary. God has delivered us from our greatest enemy, Himself, by reconciling us. We stand enemies of God because of our sin, deserving the wrath of Almighty God What did God do? We read it in Romans 5, verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. That is, through Jesus, 2 Corinthians says, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God has not just made enemies friends. He's made them sons and daughters, weak and ungodly sinners, are now adopted and beloved children, making peace through the cross of Christ. Because of the obedience, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we 
unworthy sinners can be reconciled to God. That is the most glorious truth you could ever hear. And it's one that I know most of us, if not all of us, have heard hundreds of times. And we do not want to belittle that truth right there, that you can be reconciled to God by faith in Jesus Christ, His Son. What I want to really focus on is the practical meaning every day of your being reconciled to God. If you have been reconciled to God, it has significance for you right now. Not just one day when you stand before God as your judge, but now as you sit here, as you go to work on Monday, as you go to school, as you uh, work with your family or you live among your neighbors, there's practical meaning for every day and everything that we do. Let me share them with you quickly. First, our reconciliation with God teaches us to expect certain things. So first, you can expect the best thing to happen. Now what I mean by the best thing is not your version of the best thing. But you can expect the best thing to happen, meaning God's version of the best. We are not naive. We are not ignorant. We're not walking around thinking that uh, we can just walk with our eyes closed across the, tra uh, the, the, the busy street and God's going to protect us. Jesus taught a lot about suffering and persecution, and Jesus certainly wasn't living his best life now while he hung on the cross and died. But it was the best. What I mean by that is don't expect the worst to happen simply because you can't see it getting any better. Like Jacob. There's no way that Esau's going to come and forgive me. I better bribe him with my gift. Don't expect the worst to happen just because you can't see it. Don't, Jesus said it in another way. Don't borrow from tomorrow's trouble. Don't worry about things that are out of your control. How often do we worry and stress over things that never even happen? You ever done that? You stress about a meeting? You think it's going to go poorly? And it's fine. Or you think about something that might happen, and it never happens in the first place. We lose sleep. We lose peace. We lose joy because we're stressed over what ifs. If you can't change it, don't stress about it. Trust God to do the best thing and expect the best. Secondly, expect the unexpected. Maybe you could never see it happening, and maybe you could never do anything to fix it, but with God, all things are possible. So expect the unexpected. I've been meditating on this uh, verse, Ephesians 3.20, throughout the week. As I, that's why I read it uh, to you after Donnie read Ephesians 2, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. That means that God is more capable than you can think. He is more capable than I can do. He can do more than I can do, but He can do more than I can ask Him to do. And He can do more than I can even think about asking Him to do. So don't doubt if God can, 
Believe that he can. With God all things are possible. And trust that he will do what is best. And then wait to be surprised. I mean, if God is able to do far beyond, not just a little bit, but far beyond what you and I can ask or think, don't you think that there are some prizes waiting for us? Because you cannot imagine what God will do. This story reminds us that God is at work even when we can't see it. And God is accomplishing a purpose that we have never even thought about. Because Esau was coming with 400, and Jacob feared it was an army, but the whole time, because God had changed his part, it was an escort, not an army. That's why he brought so many men, to protect his brother. Thirdly, expect what is promised. Yes, expect what is best, God's best. Expect what is unexpected, but expect what is promised. See, God has given us so many promises within His Word. Why? So that we will know them. So that we will depend on them. When God makes a promise in His Word, He's putting a a, a flag down there. He's saying, rely on this. Count on this. These are not ifs and maybes. These are not will sees. When my boys ask me if we could do something, my most common answer is, we'll see. Why? Because if I say yes, I have to do it. And if I say no, they'll keep asking. So if I say we'll see, there's a little bit of hope. God does not give us we'll sees. He doesn't give us a depends. He gives us exceeding great and very precious promises. So we need to know those promises. We need to learn them. That's why we're supposed to get into our Bibles. That's why we, 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 we spend so much time uh, when we gather around the Word of God so we can see these promises, so we can have them and hold them in our hands and talk with them, uh, of them with our children, parents. Did you know that's your responsibility? Deuteronomy says that we are to talk of them when you sit in your house and walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. All the time you're talking about the the Word of God, the promises that God has made to us. But church family, it's not just a parent thing. When we gather, we sing the promises of God. We read and listen to the promises of God. When we go downstairs and eat, we can remind each other of the promises of God, the precious and very great promises that He's given to us. Being reconciled to God means that we can be reconciled to others. That's what Ephesians 2 is all about. That Jews and Gentiles who were formerly distant in Christ are now one, unified. Those who are far off are united with those who are near. And we who are belong to the body of Christ can have peace with one another. It's a promise. Just as God can change our heart, He can change other people's hearts too. So don't ever doubt what God could do. We don't know what God will do, but we know what God can do. Or at least we know a little bit of what God can do, because He can do a lot more than we can think. But forgiveness and reconciliation are always a possibility. 
and should always be the goal, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Because God has reconciled us to himself, we can reconcile with others. It's always possible. God can restore broken and unsalvageable families. He can heal hopeless marriages. He can resurrect dead relationships. Why? Because though with man it is impossible, with God all things are possible. Now although the story of Jacob is far from over, the dreaded disaster of a reunion with his brother never happened. All because of the God who can do all things. Who promised to provide and protect. And did what he promised. And whose grace safely brought Jacob all the way home. In the song Amazing Grace we sing those words. Twas grace that brought me safe thus far. And grace will lead me home, all because of the God who can do more than we imagine. Let's pray. Gracious God, almighty and powerful and forgiving and loving God, we thank you for your promises, not just a few, but very great and precious promises. We thank you for Promises that have been made, but also promises that have been kept. We've seen it time and time again. Give us confidence going forward that the promises are still true. God, we thank you for making us friends, more than friends, children, beloved children, not stepchildren, not unwanted children. Beloved, chosen, adopted. We think of maybe friends and family members that we continue to pray that they might know this reconciliation with God in themselves. We pray for them. We ask that you would help us who have been reconciled see these practical and everyday ways that it changes the way we live. Help us to make peace. Help us to live hopefully. Help us to live joyfully. And be surprised by you. Open our eyes as we read your word to see wonderful things in your word. Be amazed at all that you do. You are great and glorious. We are in awe of our God and our Father. We give thanks to you through our brother, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray.